This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Hey folks, we're going to get started. I, uh, we took longer than five minutes, but we'll get started. So here's what we're going to do. I, I promise you we're going to talk about the latter rain. But because in the, in the schedule I'm talking about false manifestations of the Holy Spirit this session, I'm, I, I need to deliver on what is published. So I'm going to talk about those false manifestations, and then I will come back to the latter rain if that's fair enough. Okay? So let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to study your word. And now as we study, we ask for your leading and your guidance and that your Holy Spirit would convict us, Lord, that we would have a clear understanding. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so folks, here's, here's um, I, I'm going to summarize some things so I have enough time to talk about everything, okay? Here's, here's, we see for every genuine article that God has, there is a counterfeit, and the counterfeit we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is counterfeited basically by false Protestantism, which is seated in the United States. Now, we look at history and we see some false manifestations of the Holy Spirit. I think of, I think of Elijah and the Mount Carmel showdown. You remember, what is the main issue when Elijah brings Israel together? He asked the question, how long will you waver between two positions? It's actually very interesting. In the original Hebrew, he, he literally says, how long will you stand on two forks? Okay, so picture that in your mind, trying to balance on two sticks, really, underneath your feet. And, and, and so Elijah asked this question, and so the great Mount Carmel showdown, what's happening you have the false prophets of Baal, and what are they doing? They're cutting themselves, they're, they're, they're chanting, they're calling upon their God, uh, and then there comes the point where Elijah actually almost antagonizes them, saying, what's the matter, is your God sleeping? Um, and I'll tell you a brief experience. I, uh, I visited a Hindu temple when I was doing a comparative religions class, and we're touring around, and and this priest went into the room where he was going to do something. And as he went into the room, there was a bell, and he rang the bell. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. So I asked our tour guide, I said, what did he do? He says, oh, he rang the bell to wake up the gods. And as soon as he said that, right to my mind came First Kings 18. I said, wow, this is amazing. But so you have this kind of, you, you remember we talked about this yesterday, we have the we have the true God of Israel, and then we have the false gods. And the false gods are gods of nature, gods that need to be appeased. And so the false Holy Spirit movement happens in, in this, uh, this Mount Carmel showdown. And then Elijah, does Elijah have a rock concert? Does Elijah have some kind of big to-do to muster up the power of the Holy Spirit? No, what does he do? He kneel, He prays. Simple. And we talked about the simplicity of receiving the Holy Spirit. Repent, be converted, believe. To receive the Holy Spirit is simple. And so Elijah is simple. He prays. 
Fire comes down out of heaven, devours the whole sacrifice, and licks up all the water that he dumped on it just to make sure that this wasn't some false manifestation. Okay, you think about other false revival movements. In Daniel chapter 3, very interesting again, you have fire occurring again. Daniel chapter 3, what's the false revival movement? Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like the fact that his kingdom is going to end. So he constructs a whole image out of gold. And he says, when the music plays, bow down. And the three Hebrew worthies make this statement, a fascinating thing. They say, Nebuchadnezzar, our God is able to deliver us. But if he doesn't, we still won't worship your God. It's a very simple faith. God can deliver me. So when we're going through difficult times, can God deliver us? Yes, he can. But sometimes does he choose not to? There's a whole history, Fox's Book of Martyrs, of people who died. The three Hebrew worthies, they were delivered. Not everyone is delivered. But the three Hebrew worthies made a very critical piece of simple faith. Our God is able, but even if he doesn't, still not going to bow down. And you read about these stories of Huss. Huss died singing a hymn. Folks, I mean, listen, I used, to, I used to work in the restaurant business. I've been burnt before. Being burned, I mean, I never forget. I was cleaning an oven one time, cleaning a flat-top oven, and I had dumped oil on it, and you use these big black bricks, and I'm cleaning this, and all of a sudden my hand got, the, the brick got stuck on some stuff on there, and then my hand slid forward. When that did that, the oil went up over my hand. I need to tell you, it is not a pleasant experience to be burned. Huss sang a hymn as he was, and countless others. So what's the point? The false revivals are usually accompanied by spectacular happenings. The false revivals, and we're going to get into this, usually are things that need to be drummed up, not things that are simple in its faith. Do we have false manifestations in the history of the Adventist church? A.F. Ballinger. Now, by the way, we have opposite ends of false revivals. You have ecstatic revivals, and then which is what happened in Indiana. Davis and, and the conference president, Donnell, they talked about translation faith and the holy flesh movement. I'm going to read a quote on that, but we've talked about the uncouth things that happened at Indiana camp meeting. This was hundreds of years ago, over 100 years ago, by the way. This wasn't like two years ago. That's just so we're clear. So we have these things, but sometimes as, and I don't like the labels liberal and conservative, but, but I'm going to use them for this case. Sometimes we talk about these liberal happenings of crazy, crazy ecstaticism. There are also false revival movements on the opposite end. In fact, A.F. Ballinger was part of this. It was called Receive Ye the Holy Ghost Movement, where Ballinger began to promote what he called instant sanctification. And it was the idea that the believer once receiving the Holy Spirit had to become instantaneously perfect and live without sin. And so you have these false revivals, and we have false revivals in the church today. People who believe in, who, who believe in righteousness by stubbornness. I just simply dig my feet in, and I will it up myself. That's not biblical. The power of the Holy Spirit will help us to overcome. So let's talk about false manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are happening in the church today. And when I speak of the church, I mean the church, the Christian church, but is also happening in the church, the Adventist church. Are we clear? 
Notice the consistent happening that Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 38. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38. What were the Pharisees always looking for from Jesus? Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, they were looking for? They were looking for signs. Mark 8, 11, show us a sign. Luke eleven six. show us a sign. Here's the problem. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24, Jesus said there will be false Christs and false prophets who will show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the very elect. What's the principle that Jesus is now getting at? Okay, remember we started our conversation about the Holy Spirit becoming a witness. 1 John 1 says, That which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have handled. See, signs and wonders, signs and wonders. And by the way, were there miraculous happenings? Uh, True miraculous happenings? Yeah, I would say Lazarus being raised for the dead. I would say the shadow of Peter falling upon people and being healed. These are true miraculous happenings. But Jesus warned that there would be false signs and wonders. What's he getting at? A sign or a wonder is not the demonstration of something being true. Because there is a secondary thing that must happen. We must test it by what? By the Word. Isaiah, Isaiah 8.20. In this, our last session today, we'll talk, this is the focus of our time on protecting ourselves against these false manifestations. But Isaiah says, to the law, to the testimony. If they speak not according to this Word, how much light is in them? There is no light in them. And so, folks, we must be very careful. So what are some of the things happening in the church today that are really drumming up a false Holy Spirit movement? Number one, there, and, and it's still consistent, number one is the mega church philosophy. Okay, we talked about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Those of you who didn't make it to the third session, we talked about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit produce numbers? Yes, because we saw the Holy Spirit added, multiplied, and then multiplied the churches. However, what was that accompanied by? That that was accompanied by individual conversion, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in prayer, so on and so forth. The megachurch philosophy is a philosophy that is based purely upon numbers. We're, and numbers, numbers don't always mean that that is God's genuine reality, does it? See, the megachurch philosophy is this. Numbers or success, excuse me, success is found in numbers. So, if my attendance is high, I must be doing something right. The megachurch philosophy focuses on meeting needs. Is there any problem with meeting needs? No, because Jesus met needs. The problem is is when we are meeting needs outside of biblical principles and precedents. And here's the challenge that we have faced. Tom Mostert, and in this session I'm going to be giving you several resources of books that you can go and read. The first one is 
When I say giving you, I'm going to tell you them. I don't have them to hand out to you. Tom Mostert wrote a book called Hidden Heresy. And this book, and we've got several of you from California. This was when he was, right after I believe he was the Pacific Union president. He wrote this book talking about this. See, unfortunately, what many of our churches, what churches have done is have adopted this mega church philosophy. This idea that we're going to be seeker sensitive. Now, is there anything wrong with being seeker sensitive in its truest definition? No, we want to be sensitive to seekers. However, seeker sensitive means we're going to make ourselves conform to the world. Okay? Now, I need to tell you, when I first came, I I was baptized in 1995. I had come out of Catholicism. I basically stopped attending the Catholic Church when I was six. I'm 38 years old, so that way you don't have to do math in your head. I was 16 years old when I left the Catholic Church. I couldn't find any answers there, so I started doing a tour trying to figure out where was God. And I went to the Apostolic Church, and I, I had a friend who was a Jehovah Witness. I knew somebody who was a Mormon. But for years, I attended Willow Creek Community Church outside of Chicago. And I need to tell you, friends, when I was baptized and then began attending, and I began studying the ministry, and I began seeing some of our seminarians going to Willow Creek to receive their training, I need to tell you I was greatly troubled. Because the call, the call, now I need to be very careful here, because I don't want anyone to misunderstand. Does God have people who are in Babylon? Are we understanding? We need to be very careful when we enter this conversation because sometimes we really heap it on. God has good people in those churches. And if we believe that prophecy is true, which I do, God is calling them to be a part of the last day remnant movement. Okay? So, this troubled me greatly. But what we do is we're adapting the world. Here's the problem, and this is the main principle that Tom Mostert said. Because the philosophy we said was, oh, we can just adopt the methodology and we can make it Adventist. What Tom Mostert explains and demonstrates in that book is, by adopting the methodology, we also transfer with it Theology. See, we believe that the Holy Spirit will give power for people to be transformed into His likeness. And through a living example of godliness, they will make an impact in the world which will draw people. Because Jesus doesn't say, make a service, make a cafe, make this, make this, just like the world, and then they'll come. No, what does Jesus say? If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay. And so we have this false theology that is brought in and a false Holy Spirit idea. And this was made popular through books such as the Purpose Driven Church and things of that nature. The point of all of this is, brothers and sisters, we must be very careful in adopting methodologies because if we are adopting a methodology, we will likely transfer with it the theology of those that we are adopting. I don't have time to go. This is going to be kind of, uh, if you've been in an airplane, you know, uh, and you want to visit Chicago. If you want to visit Chicago, you need to land the plane and go in and get into the details. 
we're kind of doing a flyover here, okay? So that's why I'm giving you these books to go into it more. This book, but the Holy Spirit false manifestation here is the idea that numbers equal success. While the Holy Spirit brought numbers, it also brought conversions, genuine conversions. And by the way, just so you don't think I'm being critical, Willow Creek themselves just produced a book where essentially they make the point of this. Our method doesn't produce converted people. They wrote this themselves, folks. Not me making this up. Also, there's another book called Surprising Insights from the Unchurched, written by Thomas Rayner. Thomas Rayner used to be the dean of the Billy Graham School of Evangelism. Fascinating. He did a study of people who were not going to church, and instead of saying, hey, let me do a survey and say, you people are not going to church, what would bring you to church? Because the reality is, is 80% of those people wouldn't come to church anyways. What he did was, is he said, I'm going to find 500 people who weren't going to church, who started coming to church, and ask them, why did you come to church? Here was his surprising insights. The most surprising insight was this. The number one reason that people came to church, 98% of them, the pastor and his preaching. Folks, people, and I speak as someone who from, came from outside the church, people aren't looking for the same. People are looking for something different. You're here at GYC because as a young person, you've said, I want something different. I'm not looking to be entertained. Why? Well, number one, as a church, we can't outdo Hollywood. Number two, we don't do a good, very good job of entertaining anyways. And number three, the Bible doesn't call us to that. The Bible calls us to the proclamation of the word. His second surprising insight was this. 90% of the people came to the church because of the doctrines of the church. And I'm sure some of us have heard. By the way, now how, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 to 16 says that the Holy Spirit inspired men of God to write the word. And what does the word go for? doctrine. See, we have reached a place where there are many who are talking, we need to steer away from doctrine. The reality is, is people are looking for a solid rock upon which they can stand. And then his, he had many surprising insights, but the other one I'll share with you is this. 11%. 11% came back to church because of the music and worship style. I want you to look at that. Real hard. We spend 90% of our time talking about this. What would happen if we spent all of our time talking about and training up people to preach and teaching people to give solid Bible studies that explain biblical doctrine and keep this all simple? That's first false, false uh, false Holy Spirit revival. Pentecostalism. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But Pentecostalism, there are two books that you're going to want to get your hands on. The first is Speaking in Tongues by Gerhard Hazel. That went out of print, but I think they have reprinted it here recently. Gerhard Hazel wrote a book, Speaking in Tongues, where he goes into the, the very essence and the very history of the Pentecostal movement. 
Solid book. Gerhard Hosel used to be the dean of the seminary at Andrews University. The second book you want to get your hands on is Counterfeit Revivals by Hank Hanegraaff. Now, I need to tell you, Hank Hanegraaff is not a Seventh-day Adventist. For those of you that listen to the radio, he is the Bible answer man. Okay, He is not terribly friendly to Seventh-day Adventists. However, his book, and so what am I telling you? When you read that book, you read that book in the context that he is not a Seventh-day Adventist. What he does have good information on is the tongues movement, the ecstatic movements, the utterances movements, and all of these holy flesh movements. Why is this important? Because some people, even within the Adventist church, are being deceived into the idea that Pentecostalism and this excited happenings is really the baptism of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the revivals that were happening in Indiana were spurred on because because Donald believed that Adventism had the truth and Pentecostalism had the Holy Spirit and tried to merge the two. So we need to be very, very careful. What's a third false manifestation of the Holy Spirit? This we could spend hours and hours and hours upon. But the issue of music, and I know I step into an area of sensitivity, but I'm just going to give you some principles. Brian Newman, you want to get resources that he has available. Some of you know He's even a good friend of mine, and I can't pronounce his name right, but I'm going to give it an attempt. His name is Carl Cisalabasides. He teaches at Wachita Hills College. He has written a book called Drums, Rock, and Worship. He is currently writing a Ph.D. dissertation on the presence of God. Here are some fascinating things, and this is something that we have to keep in mind. Music styles are formed on a foundation. And that foundation will principally always exist and convey a message no matter what the words are to those tunes. Okay? So, for example, rock music. What is rock music founded on? Rock music is founded on the blues, jazz, country, and gospel. Hopefully, your your ear just kind of perked up when I said gospel. The greatest deceptions the devil ever comes up with are those deceptions that have truth mingled with error. Okay? If I came to you with a bottle of arsenic and I said, here, drink it. Are you going to do it? No. But if I come and I bring you a glass of carrot juice in which I have thrown several drops of arsenic, then you're going to drink it. See, that's the most dangerous type of error. So rock music is based on the blues. The blues is founded with elements of voodoo. Jazz is inherited and kept the beats utilized and associated with paganism and animism. And country is a western style that simply adapted to different ideals of rock. What's the principal issue? Each of them is used to invoke an emotional experience induced by a specific genre of music. Have you ever... And I'm going to talk about media in just a moment. But have you, ever, have you ever listened to a song? A song makes you feel like you're really sad. You call, I, I don't know why I'm so sad. Like, I just listened to the song and it made me sad. Why? It was designed to do that. Uh, in media, 
And, I, and I'm not trying to make fun of anybody, but I have found it fascinating as I've examined these things. We'll watch something that's fictional, and somebody will die, and we'll cry. That's a little interesting. They're not really dead. They just acted like they died. You understand? Music is designed to evoke emotions. And what Pastor Carl is currently doing his dissertation on is this. That it's a very fascinating subject that in worship styles, each church or, or, or um, category of church invokes the presence of God. So in Catholicism, what do they do to invoke the presence of God in their worship service? They have the sacraments. In a true Bible-believing church, what invokes the presence of God? The Word itself. Because the Word is God, is Jesus incarnate. Okay? Or, or, I'm sorry, Jesus is the Word incarnate. I didn't say that quite right. But it is very interesting, in Pentecostalism, and written by many of their authors, how are they to invoke the Holy Spirit? Through music. Using beats, using different kind of music, to invoke an emotional experience to prepare the believer for what's about to happen. When you read Gerhard Hazel's book, Speaking in Tongues, it's the same, he explores this idea that if I, can, if I can get you all excited and notice, we have adopted some of these same principles in our churches. If you ever have attended or been a part of the Pentecostal church experience, which I had been when I was younger, what happens? Music that really builds you up, the exciting, fast, loud music. And then what happens? And then we get right into the slow, soft music. Why? Because we're being prepared. We're being prepared. Listen to what Ellen White says. In Second Selected Messages, page 36. It is impossible to estimate too largely the work that the Lord will accomplish through His pro- proposed vessels in carrying out His mind and purpose. The things you have described as taking place in Indiana, the Lord has shown me would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, dancing. Let me pause there. Find it very interesting. Drums, music, dancing. Think about what's happening in our churches today. Drums, music, and what, but, but, but wait, 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 wait. They're worship drums. It's worship dancing. Folks, we need to think about and dig into why these things are going on. Second Selected Messages, page 36. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions, and this is called the moving of the Holy Spirit. See, the devil has so craftily, uh, and, and, and folks, I don't have time, but listen to some of Dr. Nedley's stuff on Audioverse. He has fascinating things about the power of music and what it does to your mind. But music can actually, music can actually prepare your mind to simply bypass the frontal lobe. 
This is problematic because if I'm bypassing the frontal lobe, I am not able to process what's now going into my mind. The quote goes on to say this. The Holy Spirit never reveals itself in such methods. Did you hear that? The Holy Spirit never reveals itself in such methods, in such a bedlam of noise. This is an invention of Satan to cover up his ingenious methods for making of none effect the pure, sincere, elevating, ennobling, sanctifying truth for this time. Better never have the worship of God blended with music than to use musical instruments to do the work which last January was represented to me would be brought into our camp meetings. The truth for this time needs nothing of this kind in its work of converting souls. A bedlam of noise shocks the senses, perverts that which, if conducted aright, might be a blessing. The powers of satanic agencies blend with the din and noise to have a carnival. And this is termed the Holy Spirit's workings. Folks, we don't have time to go into all the details of music and what I'm going to encourage you is you need to do research. Folks, this thing of music is a huge thing. This is a huge thing. Both because music on its mo- by itself is not, and it's demonstrably done through research. Music is not amoral. Do you understand what that means? Music, even without its words, sends a moral message. But we not only need to study the words that we're singing, but we also need to take a very close look at the type and genres of music that we're listening. You can, and this, and why do I bring this up? Because Ellen White herself says this is the false manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The media, the media is preparing us to accept spiritualism because it introduces new age principles and experiences. I talked about this earlier. Some of you may not even know what I'm talking about, and praise God that you don't. But the Star Wars, the Star Wars series, a preparation for Near Eastern model of religion, the Force. The Force is the false Holy Spirit. The Force is this power that is manipulated by me. Star Wars, a false manifestation. Harry Potter, Twilight. But then there are less subtle entries into the media. Superheroes. And sometimes there are, they are done in very non-threatening, yet very subtle ways. Okay? I, I, don't, I don't have cable or anything in my home, but I was traveling, and I really I love to cook. I like to cook. And so there's the Food TV Network. That seems, that's, that seems like that's pretty, you know, that's, that's pretty uh, G-rated. What, what happened there? Very interesting. I'm watching this show. And they start referring to where all the ingredients of what they're going to be cooking. This is the Iron Chef. Okay? What do they call it where all the ingredients are? They call it the, the altar. And he starts using language. And who will be victorious? And who will stand? And I started listening to the language he was using. And I just said, what is going on here? Disturbed me. So there are resources. I, I'm not an expert in these areas, but there are two resources that I know of, and that is Little Light Ministries. Little Light Ministries has produced a number of things, and then there is someone that I spent a lot of time talking to yesterday from Grand Rapids Academy, Scott uh, Ritzema, I believe is how you say his name. Media on the Brain. He has a DVD series. 
Okay, folks, I don't make any money off of any of this stuff, but you need to get these resources because, folks, we are preparing ourselves and our children for the deceptions of the devil through the media. Okay? And again, does God have a true use of media? You bet He does. Okay? Okay? We can do powerful things through the proclamation of the gospel, but media is preparing people to receive spiritualism. You have all these ideals where people are going to very much be agreeable to receiving spiritualistic ideas. Worship styles and experiences. I'm going to move on from that, folks. We, 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 I want to get to this one, and it is, it is the current, and it is, I believe, the most dangerous thing that we have on the horizon right now, and that is the emerging church movement. Okay, For those of you unfamiliar with the emerging church movement, you will find names such as spiritual formation. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. Okay, The word spiritual formation in and of itself is not a bad word. However, this is what has happened. That word has been hijacked. And so, when, when you see spiritual formation now, it is, not, it is a description of what's happening in the emerging church. So let me be very clear. Originally, spiritual formation was another word they used for discipleship, genuine discipleship. However, that word now has come to mean something totally different than what it was originally intended. So when you see the word spiritual formation, contemplative prayer, Reiki Reiki meditation, things of this nature, we are talking about the emerging church. What is the emerging church? I'm not going to tell you what the emerging church is. Let me read some of their literature so you are very clear on what the emerging church is. Here are several principles to the foundational idea of what the emerging church is. The world is radically changing and the church must radically change with it. Process these things as I'm saying them. I'll comment on all of them in a minute. Since the church has been culture-bound for so long, we must re-examine and question every belief and practice in the church, finding new ways to define and express these. Are you hearing some of these things? Okay. Notice, we have no foundation for any beliefs. Therefore, we cannot know absolute truth. Since we cannot know absolute truth, we can only experience what is true for our communities. I'm going to pause on that one. The emerging church, the postmodern movement, is founded on a very contradictory principle. And this is why it is not successful. Let me read to you what this says again. And I want, I want you to process now. What is the contradiction? We have no foundation for any beliefs. Therefore, we cannot know absolute truth. Since we cannot know absolute truth, we can only experience that which is true from our communities. The irony, the contradiction of it is, they say, there is no absolute truth. What is the glaring question that must be asked? When I say there is no absolute truth, what's the glaring question that I must ask? Is that in of itself an absolute? You see? Internally, do you all understand what I'm saying? If I make the statement, there is no absolute truth, I've made an absolute statement. The very foundation of the emerging church in the postmodern movement is founded on a contradiction. Notice. 
Another principle, since we cannot know absolute truth, we cannot be dogmatic about doctrine. Since we cannot know absolute truth, we cannot be dogmatic about moral standards. Since we cannot know about absolute truth, dogmatic preaching must give way to dialogue between people of all beliefs. Since propositional truth is uncertain, spiritual feelings and social action make up the only reliable substance of Christianity. To capture a sacred feeling, we should reconnect with ancient worship forms. Since sublime feeling is experienced through outward forms, we should utilize art forms in our worship. Many participants in the movement see appreciating art for art's sake as a spiritual experience. Through conversation with them, quote-unquote outsiders, will become a part of our community and then be able to understand and believe what we teach. The postmodern approach is not to try to persuade people to believe. It is try to befriend people into joining. This is commonly expressed as Robert Weber does when he says, people in a postmodern world are not persuaded to faith by any reason as much as they are moved to faith by participation in God's earthly community. There is a false antithesis in such statements, however. We do not have to choose between a purely cerebral attempt to talk to others into believing correctly on one hand and offering an open, unqualified invitation to our group on the other. I'm sorry, this is, these are my notes. Let, let me just keep going. All are welcome to join in the conversation. The ultimate goal. Now let me ask you. What is the ultimate goal of Adventist Christianity? That's a little profound. What is the ultimate goal? You have to know what's the ultimate goal. What's the ultimate goal of the Adventist message? For being in heaven, right? The ultimate goal is the restoration of man to being in the presence of God. What is the ultimate goal of the emerging church movement? The ultimate goal is to make the world a better place. The emerging church movement envisions a utopia in which the oppressed of the world are free, the poor are no longer impoverished, and the environment is clean. This paradise is achieved through social activism. Many emergent leaders think it is selfish folly to live for the return of Christ. The emerging church movement, spiritual formation, contemplative prayer, contemplative spirituality, breath prayer, Reiki meditation. These are all names of a movement that is trying to draw us back to ancient mystical belief system in order to what? To foster up feelings to replace what the work of the Holy Spirit is. The whole idea behind The whole idea behind the emerging church movement is this secret idea, this secret knowledge, or a secret plan to find God. Replace the Bible, replace doctrine, replace the Holy Spirit with methodologies found in other ancient religions. Why is this? Because it's leading to ecumenism. The founding relics of the emerging church movement, they go to find their ancient religious practices with the Desert Fathers. The Desert Fathers were a group of monks 
who went to Near Eastern religions, to Hinduism, to Buddhism, to find how did they experience the presence of God. And then they introduced it into the Christian church. Folks, there is no such thing as Christian yoga. Yoga is a practice of Near Eastern mysticism. Notice what Ellen White says. The emerging church movement, by the way, is rampant in the evangelical church. And it is beginning to make headways into the Adventist church. Listen to these words from Ellen White in Evangelism, page 235. With rapid steps, we are approaching this period when Protestant churches shall unite with secular power to sustain a false religion for opposing which their ancestors endured the fiercest persecution. Then will the papal Sabbath be enforced by the combined authority of church and state. There will be a national apostasy which will end only in national ruin. Going on in the Great Controversy, page 588, there are two great errors. The immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness. Satan will bring people under his deceptions. While the former lays the foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp the hands of the Roman power. And under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome and trampling on the rights of conscience. Do you see what's happening? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that the emerging church is the spiritualism that Ellen White is talking about here. But what I will say is it is very plausible because the evangelical church, the Protestant church, is allowing the emerging church to come in with these spiritualistic practices. And so the Protestant church is reaching out its hand and grasping the hand of spiritualism also by its belief in the immortality of the soul but then is now going to bridge the abyss between them and the Roman church and clasp their hand and thus you have this union of state, spiritualism and false Christianity. Great Controversy goes on to say as spiritualism more closely excuse me As spiritualism more closely imitates the nominal Christianity of the day, it has greater power to deceive and ensnare. Satan himself is is converted after the modern order of things. He will appear in the character of an angel of light. Through the agency of spiritualism, miracles will be wrought. The sick will be healed and many undeniable wonders will be performed. And as the spirits will profess faith in the Bible and manifest respect for the institutions of the church, their work will be, excuse me, their work will be accepted as a manifestation of divine power. Who is that divine power? Who is that power? One more, and this is from Great Controversy, page 571. As the Protestant churches have been seeking favor of the world, false charity has blinded their eyes. They do not see, but that it is right to believe good of all evil. And as the inevitable result, they will finally believe evil of all good. Instead of standing in defense of the faith once delivered to the saints, they are now, as it were, apologizing to Rome for the uncharitable opinion of her begging pardon for their bigotry. 
So what's happening? The Holy Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's work is to fall on us and give us power. Power to be witnesses. Witness is the Greek word martus. It is the word that we get the word martyr. The power of the Holy Spirit is to transform the individual. And as the individual is transformed, the individual now has proclamation to the world, not through just their speaking, but through their action. The false manifestation of the Spirit through the emerging church and through these ancient mystical practices is why? Because the church is devoid of real power. Folks, why do our young people leave the church? And I'm going to speak to some of you adults in here. Why are young people leaving the church? Because there is no real power. Because they don't see power in the church and they don't see power in their home. They see inconsistency in their home, inconsistency in belief, and they therefore come to the conclusion, if this is what it's done for you, I'm not interested. And that may come across as a little harsh. But folks, we are living in the last days of this earth's history. And God is calling upon His people to get our act together and have the true Holy Spirit fall on us, that we are Christians, we are Seventh-day Adventist Christians, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, in our home, in our school, with our brother, with our sister, with our spouse, with our girlfriend, with our boyfriend, so on and so forth. With the cashier, with the person at the restaurant. Are, Are we being clear? But why is the emerging church so attractive? Because if I get involved in breath prayer, where I empty myself, and I focus on one word, and I repeat it over and over again, it makes me feel good. Because we have no experience, we seek for an experience and we receive a false experience. And as the Bible says, we have a form of godliness, but deny the power therein. Ellen White. Ellen White talks about a revival of primitive godliness. And I had that in my notes, but I'm missing it now. Um, Give me one second here, and I want to read that to you. We have just a few moments left together here. This is Great Controversy, page 464. And this is... this is out of the 1888 version of the Great Controversy. I, the, reason, the only reason I'm saying that, I have, I use the 1911 version as well. Okay, so don't, please, let's not get involved in that. But the reason I'm telling you that is I don't know if the pagination is different. So 464 in that Great Controversy. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be, does it say there might be? No, it says there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since when? Apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured upon his children. At that time, 
Many will separate themselves from those churches in which the love of this world has supplanted the love for God and His Word. Many, both ministers and people, will gladly accept those great truths which God has caused to be proclaimed at this time to prepare a people for the Lord's coming. What's the point of this? Because we read that and we get excited because... Well, someday that will happen. What does she say? There will be a revival of primitive godliness among who? God's people. And then other people will be converted. So when we're wondering, why does my mom doesn't come, why don't, why doesn't my mom come to church? Why doesn't my dad come to church? Why doesn't my spouse come to church? Why don't my children go to church? Because God is calling upon us to have a revival of primitive godliness. A godliness that comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. That we would truly be witnesses in our home. Witnesses in our workplace. Witnesses in the world. And so, let me, let me in the last few moments, in a subject that would take over an hour, let's talk about the latter rain. Latter rain, James chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. What is the purpose of the latter rain? We talk about the latter rain all the time. James chapter 5, verses 7 to 9. What does James say, beginning in verse 7? Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And now he tells us how we're going to be patient. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, waiting patiently for it, Until it receives the early and latter rain, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, let me give you some other texts. Deuteronomy 11.14, Proverbs 16.15, Jeremiah 3.3, Jeremiah 5.24. Hosea 6.3 and Joel 2.23-28. Let me make one comment on Joel 2.23-28, by the way. This text has been so mishandled in the last year of our church. It's, it's, really a, it's actually fairly upsetting. Joel 2 has absolutely zero to do with our current issue of the ordination of women in the church. Joel 2 is about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be on men, women, and children. Okay, we got it? So the Holy Spirit, so this doesn't have anything to do with ordination. We'll let these other guys figure out the ordination issue, and I'm not saying that it's not an important issue to study, but let's be clear on what that text is talking about. That text is talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit only falls on ordained ministers, we are in big, big trouble, folks. So, what is the latter rain, and what is the purpose of the latter rain? The first rain. What would happen? Farmer, because what does James say? Look at the farmer. So what does the farmer do? The farmer does what first to the soil? He prepares the soil. There's a cultivation of the soil. And then the farmer plants the seeds. And then comes the early rain. And in Israel, the early rain would happen in the autumn, in, in the autumn time. It, was, it would rain on those seeds, so the seeds would get a good start to root before the cold time. 
and the plants would begin to grow. Those of you who've grown a garden, you always like it when you plant the seeds and then it rains because that means you don't have to water it. Because, and, and now you, those of you around here don't have much problem with watering because it just rains all the time here. But I've been to eastern Washington and in eastern Washington, when I came to eastern Washington, this uh, happened about ten year, uh, six years ago. I had never been to Washington, so I'm expecting the calendar, you know, the, the green, white snow, green mountains and white snow-capped mountains. And I landed in Pasco Airport on my way to Walla Walla College. And we're pulling out of the airport, and there are tumbleweeds going across the road. And I said, where have I landed? But anyways, the point is, you drive out there, what do you need? The key to growing stuff in eastern Washington is irrigation. You need water. So the early rain would fall to get the seed started. The early reign of Pentecost got the church started. But let's make it, okay? The early reign and the latter reign are for the church, yes. But the early reign and the latter reign are for me. So there's an early reign when we're first baptized. There's that early reign that sets the seed. And then the seed begins to grow. But then what does James say? Then comes the latter rain. And the latter rain would come in the spring, in our months of May and April. Why the latter rain? What would the latter rain do? The latter rain would finish off for production. The plants have been growing all along. See, the unfortunate deception in our church has been lately is that we have this idea that we kind of sit around and, oh, when the latter rain falls, I'll be ready. But see, the early rain comes to get the growth started. And then growth continues. Why? Because we're praying for the Holy Spirit every day. So there's that little bit of rain every day. Every day we're getting a little rain. And there's growing. And we're continuing to grow. And then when the latter rain falls, it's to finally finish that which God has started. I want you to notice now. I want you to notice in Great Controversy, page 611, what it says. The angel who unites in the proclamation of the third angel's message is to lighten the whole earth with his glory. A work of worldwide extent, an unwanted power is here foretold. The Advent movement of 1840-44 to was a glorious manifestation of the power of God. The first angel's messages... Excuse me, the first angel's message was carried to every missionary station in the world. And in some countries, there was the greatest religious interest which has been witnessed in any land since the Reformation of the 16th century. But these are to be exceeded by the mighty movement under the last warning of the third angel. The work will be similar to that of the day of Pentecost as the former reign was given in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the opening of the gospel to cause the upspringing of the precious seed. So the latter reign will be given at the close for the ripening of the harvest. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain, as the latter and former rains under the earth. Be glad then, ye children of Israel, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain. Okay, and I'm going to end with this because I know we're over time already. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than marked its opening, 
the prophecies which were fulfilled in the outpouring of the former rain at the opening of the gospel are again to be fulfilled in the latter rain at its close. Here are the times of refreshing to which the apostle Peter looked forward when he said, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. What's the whole point? Some of you have been asking, how, Pastor, how is this all going to happen? How is it even possible that we can convert the earth? We're not even converted as a church, remember. Before the early rain fell, the early church was fighting over who would be greatest. Great contention in the church. The Holy Spirit is given by Jesus. Jesus gives them a message. And in just 40 brief days, the Bible says they were of one accord. The Spirit is poured out, and 120 become 3,120 in one day. What is the latter rain supposed to do? The latter rain will transform us as we are cut to the heart and come under one accord and in rapid movements. And by the way, that's interesting because Ellen White says the final movements will be rapid ones. Folks, we need to get our hearts ready. We need to stop. When is the church? Stop asking that question. When are you and when am I? When am I going to be cut to the heart, repent and be converted, and believe and have the outpouring of this Holy Spirit in my life? And through my transformation, my church, my conference, my union, my division, the world church is transformed. The latter rain comes out, and if we grow by 300% like the early church did, you do the math the work of God would be finished instantaneously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. You don't leave us, Lord, just thrashing in the wind, but Lord, you have given us a promise, a promise that the Holy Spirit can be in our life right now by simply asking that through repenting, conversion, and believing, the power of the Holy Spirit would transform us. Through that transformational work, Lord, then you will pour out that special ladder rain to finish off this harvest. Lord, we want to go home. Ready our hearts. Ready our hearts, Lord, that we would be ready to be citizens in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.